Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TNQ Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luttrell. Every week, it's my job to fire you up, to ignite the legend inside of you, and to push you to your greatness. Join me every week as I take you into my briefing room with some of the most hard-charging people on the planet. They're going to show you how to embrace the suck of life, teach you the values of working your ass off, and charge through whatever life throws at you. This is the Team Never Quit Podcast. Podcast. So buckle up, buttercup. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Team Never Quit podcast. It is a beautiful Monday. It's a little warm in Texas. Probably more than just a little warm, but... It's hot. It's hot. It's hot. <laughs> it's, hot. It's, hot. it's hot all over, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah that's, that's true. Well, we like to kick these podcasts off with a Patreon question. And today's, I was a little... I wasn't sure about it, but I think it'll be fun. The question today is, what would your warning label say if you had a warning label? Good one. Jay, what's yours? Um, what would my warning label say? Um, prepare to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Mine would probably say spicy. Proceed with extreme caution. Proceed with extreme, yeah. Yeah, what would yours be? A gassy, don't feed cheese, ice cream, or pizza after <laughs> six what? or seven. <laughs> I'm being honest, okay? <laughs> Only honesty here. Right after midnight. Johnny, man. I think mine would be warning makes excessive noise. Yeah. I'm always being pretty loud, making music and whatnot. <laughs> but so soft-smoking. But I know. That's because that's offstage I'm tired. That's funny. Yeah, a lot of warm-up time. That's that's right. well. When this thing gets to going. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've got an awesome guest in store for you guys. Jay Dobbins is a federal agent of 27 years, a veteran undercover operative, New York Times bestselling author, public speaker, and high school football coach. Jay is perhaps best known for his landmark effort against the notorious Hells Angels. He was the first ever lawman to defeat the gang's multi-layered security measures, getting inside to become a member of their legendary Skull Valley Charter. Welcome to the show, Jay. Super excited to have you here. Thank you for having me, and welcome to your audience. Yes. So, yeah, it's a fascinating story. I, I, I came across your name a long time ago and what you did and the, the service that you provided. So I, 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 just to have you in here, man, is a, is a great pleasure. So thanks again, brother, for, for, for being here. Before we get into uh, the, the, the story, let's back it up a little bit. We like to kind of invite our guests in just to get to know you, like where you're from and how this started. So where were you born? How did you grow up? Yeah, I was born uh, in Northwest Indiana, just outside Chicago, uh, moved to Arizona when we were about, uh, I was about 10 years old. My family moved out here. Um, I grew up in a, a blue collar house. My dad was a carpenter. My mom was a house cleaner. Uh, we had everything we needed, but we never had much. 
I, I lived a very happy, peaceful, safe childhood. Um, went to college at the University of Arizona, played football in college, had a very uh, short-lived professional career, what? Uh, what? and became a, uh, a federal agent in 1987. I think you did more in the first part of your life than a, yeah. right. So than you actually my, played in the NFL. Well, um, I uh, played at the University of Arizona. Mm-hmm. I played a uh, partial season in the Canadian Football League. I played uh, for your old timer guests. I played in the United States Football League, the old USFL. Um, I had uh, a tryout in the NFL, and I quickly found out that I was not a professional football player. <laughs> We got the USFL back, right? Then they just open back up. We do. Yeah, I'll be interested in seeing how that one goes. All right. So siblings, I do. I have a uh, sister that's four years younger than me. I have a brother that's nine years younger than me. Um, I've been married for thirty-three years, uh, oh, which is uh, a tribute. Uh, not as not so much to me, but a tribute to my wife. Yeah, right. uh, uh, she's way better than I deserve. I have a now a, a 31 year old daughter and a 27 year old son. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, nice work, brother. So when you were going into the agency, what made you decide to do that? Um, I uh, had always dreamed of being a professional football player. I never had a plan B. That's all I ever dreamed of or worked towards. Um, I went to the 1985 NFL Combine. And, you know, intended to show off and, and prove myself and make my way. And uh, I was competing against a couple guys uh, during the drills that I'd never heard of. You know, and I had made a, a, a decent name for myself in college football. I was an all Pac-10 football player. So I really thought this was my opportunity. Uh, ten years into the drill or ten minutes into these drills, I realized I couldn't do what these guys that I was next to were capable of doing. Now, in hindsight, uh, two of the guys I was working out with, one uh, was a cat named Andre Reed, who went on to play huh. 15 years oh, for the yeah. Bills and played in a bunch of Super Bowls. And the other guy I was next to was Jerry Rice, who was arguably Sounds you familiar. know, the greatest football player to ever wear a helmet and shoulder pads. Um, at the time, I didn't know that. But nonetheless, uh, I, I couldn't do what they could do. I just, I wasn't, I, I had no excuses. You, you see failed athletes who say like, oh, well, I hurt my knee or I had my bad shoulder or I hurt my back or the coach didn't like me. I have zero excuses. I had every opportunity to make it and I just wasn't skilled enough. So like a lot of young people, I was left without a plan B. And at the time, as hokey as this sounds, at the time, the television show, Miami Vice. I was going to say, this was very the 80s, popular. right? <laughs> so TV was huge for us. It molded our generation. If you didn't go into something perfect, that was, that was the route. That's the same thing that happened to me. We, and just our generation kind of talks about that because I think it's just unique to ours. The 70s and 80s babies, right? The ones that, 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 that grew up on our, that, that TV. Well, Marcus, I'll tell you, like as an audience... We had not seen a television show like that. 
The police shows that were out there were very procedural. They were uniform cops and they were detectives showing up reactive. And then Sonny Crockett shows up on scene and he's driving a Lamborghini and he's like wearing Hugo Boss suits and he's meeting with drug kingpins and he's meeting at these mansions and stripper models are bringing him mojitos (laughs) and the glamour and sexy side of it like was super intriguing to me. Hell man, they even what? made the the opening car scene interesting around the theme song, just them driving around was cool. You know, once I, I, I got into it and realized real life that undercover work is a, a nasty, dirty, bloody vomit covered scab of a life to live. Once I realized that it wasn't Hollywood, I still loved it. I loved it even more <laughs> every day. What my alarm that? clock would go off and I couldn't wait to go to work. What is that? That's true. That's well, that's the way it is with a lot of the jobs that we do like that. It's like, yeah, it's it's gnarly in here. But if you're gnarly enough to be in there, you can make a life out of it. Well, I think that, you know, th- that story probably uh, is uh, e- equates to to young people who um, see the glamour and sexiness of of your life, of of the seal life and and the tactics and the operators. And then when they get past the glitz, you have to love the grind. Yeah. You have to love the bad days to be great. You have to love your bad days to be great. Well, yeah, well, oh yeah. Well you get too technical boil it all the way down. It's I mean that's that's what you're in there for. For Marcus it was uh Charlie Sheen's Navy SEALs, that movie. That got me. That, that, that one hit <laughs> yeah. me right there. You know, when Charlie showed up, I was like, hey, I, I think and that's so, what I was you know, He's doing these high do. altitude jumps and he's doing all this amazing things right. and he's got all this equipment on him. And then when you're when you're in the muck and the blood and, and you know, we're all uh, very familiar with with your story, Marcus. Um, it turns out to be something very much different than Hollywood sells us on. And you have to love those days. Mm-hmm. So that's what I learned while I was up there. Cause I kind of went through that, that too. I'm like, man, I, it wasn't, I don't remember feeling that kind of what you saw on TV. Cause the, what we have to go through in real life is completely different. But I think the Hollywood's done a great job of showing how our people, how to respect the, the, those people in our line of work. And that's how they have to do it because of how hard it is. And there's stuff that is lost in translation, but because people come up to you and I and be like, man, I don't know how you did that. I mean, it, it was awesome. And it's like, yeah, dude, I, trust me. There's some things I had to go through. I can't even, well, I don't even really remember them. Right. But if it set a standard and a mark for somebody to follow that, that's how you know you accomplish something in a good way. And well, it's, it's tough, man. Yeah. And, and, and I think those, those, uh, those shows and that entertainment aspect of those lives they, they do serve a purpose. You look at like the Top Gun movies that are, you know, the old movie and the new one. Um, you got kids signing up because they believe they're going to go fly jets. And of every 10,000 kids that puts his name on a piece of paper, one of them is going to get to do that. Sure. You know, yeah. and you better be willing to like be in the uh, basement of an aircraft carrier uh, mixing up oatmeal because yeah. that's where you might end up. Yeah. Yeah. You got to really want it. Sure. For sure. I, I, I tell you what, I remember when we would go out and do something and it was hard, I would come back in and throw those same movies on again. It was almost like watching somebody who was really good at it. 
as you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, as motivation. Yeah. And, and man, I, I would get my butt kicked and I'd come back in. And I'd watch them get their butts kicked and they'd get through. And it was just like, hey, man, that's how you're supposed to do it. And it would well, recycle. And it would, it would, my head would get clear because of it. You, you had a uh, uh, firsthand experience, you know, on your movie set that you're, you're, you're coaching and you're guiding these actors who are mimicking your story and your life and, and your dialogue and, and all those things. What they have that you didn't have is second takes. They, they miss a line. They miss a tactic. You know what? They can reset and try again. Real life, you don't get second chances. And there's the world you lived in, there's no special effects crew there loading you guys up with squibs. Like those are real bullets, real guns, real enemies. And at the end of the day, it's life and death. Yeah. Um, there's no so silver platters it, it's, with it's, it's no. counterfeit to some extent, but nonetheless glamorous. And, sure. and it's for, like, as an audience, it's fun. We love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You get one of those directors in there that only does first takes. Yeah. I mean, you want to put some stressors on him suckers. Do we, we, like we yeah. train him up and be like, Hey, you only get one shot at this. Yeah. Peter Berg did do a really yeah, he good did it job. Like, I mean, he did it he like really that. Did. He did. Cause he, a lot of that stuff. I'm sorry. Yeah. He made the actors actually go through a tr like training courses um, with real seals on how to carry a weapon, how to move, you know, how to get down in prone, like all of the things that the guys needed to do, the yeah. land warfare tactical stuff. He had a team of seals that trained them before the movie actually started filming. So I feel like he did a really yeah. good job. And on top of that mountain, you couldn't do a couple of takes. Yeah. So it wasn't how it was working, man. It was just kind of Well, and you guys did a wonderful job of, of preparing those actors because the last thing you want from someone in the world that you're replicating for film, like a real operator, is to watch your movie or watch your show and say, we don't move like that. We don't talk like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, like th that. That's th that's not the right equipment. Like to do it well. Obviously, the actors are beautiful and they're talented and and all those things. But you want them to be authentic. Yeah. Well, that's how you know they they could be gifted at that at what they were uh, acting at. Mm -hmm. Like when uh, kind of like what you went into. I mean, there's no way you could have done that job unless you were smooth. Mm -hmm. Unless you were just overall like that. I mean, that's the same way it is with team guys. You, I mean, you, it's like, yeah, we can train you, man, but there is that something like you can get in there and do it. Yeah. So you're watching Here's Miami Vice, and how do you go from being inspired from the TV show, which was super popular in that time period, to signing up? Because to do an undercover thing, it's really hard to get that Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Kind of like the the kid that wants to fly Go from playing football to... to yeah, uh, to top, the Top Gun pilots, you know, like we said, it's one in 10,000. Same thing for an undercover. I mean, it's almost like guys who want to fly a plane as opposed to then they get stuck, go, or they come to find out they go driving a submarine. I mean, not two different worlds. <laughs> I'll tell you what, what now, um, 30 plus years later is a funny story is, um, I got hired on a Monday, um, in November of 1987, uh, before I had gone to an Academy, before I had any training, 
Uh, four days later, I was taken hostage and shot. Oh my gosh. Um, um, I was, I was shot point blank in the back, uh, in an arrest operation, the bullet like went in my back, it traveled through my, my lung, it narrowly missed my heart. It exited my chest. And so I'd been on the job four days with the feds. Like we get paid every two weeks. Like I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. <laughs> and I was laying in the dirt and the dog shit with blood coming out of my chest. Like you're holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose. Sure. They front loaded um, it for you. <laughs> and you know, like I was saying, like, I don't remember this episode from Miami vice. I don't remember Sonny Crockett getting blasted his first day on right. the job. Oh my God. That was in the pilot program or the pilot. <laughs> That's yeah. Crazy. And you know, like when we, when we warmed up our conversation uh, and, and I, I told Marcus, you know, for your audience, it, it feels absurd for me to tell that story. It, it feels inadequate. Like we all know what Marcus went through, you know, losing his partners on that mountain and fighting back and, and falling down the mountain for years and having a team come in to try to rescue you. And, and, and then they are, are killed in the process. And, and, and all of that, that it has uh, of your story, that's become so well known for me to tell my story. It feels like, like I'm telling the story about stubbing my toe or getting a paper cut in comparison. <laughs> and all. it truly is yeah. a stubbing a toe or getting well, a paper cut story in no, comparison. Totally oh, well, here, okay. Well, I'll tell you what, well then it takes somebody like me with the creds. I have to tell you that don't stop thinking like that because yeah. what you went through is, is, yeah, but you, just as crazy. I yeah, mean, super crazy. I mean, Marcus, yesterday when I told him that you were coming on, he genuinely was so excited. Well, I don't know how dangerous the light. <laughs> I mean, I know them guys. Yeah, I, well, I mean that world. You had to, so don't. I mean, that is. You crazy know what? That, I think that um, uh, Marcus um, and 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 people like Marcus, when when you are a, a high achiever, uh, those people are are self confident. And they are not insecure about admiring and being flattering of other high achievers. Um, if, if you've lived that life and if you've done extraordinary things, you don't have to blow out somebody else's candle to make yours burn brighter. Oh, no, you no, can no. admire quite the opposite. Yeah, yeah, people quite who've, who've done amazing things you make because light up. you're secure in what you did. Yeah. No, we're, we can't wait to hear your full story. It's, it's because- quite a, okay. I think there's... What you're saying is absolutely on point, and I think, but there's a point to when it gets so difficult in a situation that when it changes you back, it makes you reflect back on everything, and you can also look at other people and what they're going through and really have an appreciation for how hard it is. If anything, that's I, what it did to me. I would assume that uh, that the amount of attention that your story got, the people that are insecure out there in the world are the ones that spoke up with criticism because they know, like, I could never do that. I would never survive that. And the only way for me to feel good or feel an equal is to cut Marcus down at the knees and bring him down to my level because I'm not capable of rising to his level. And that is, that, that's an unfortunate, an unfortunate personality trait of, of, of some people. Yeah. Yeah, but there's an armor that comes with what I had to go through because it creates a shield for that. Yeah, and a team of people around him yeah. that were around him in the teams that that really kept a shield around him, saying like, "We know what you went through, and you know, <laughs> we're glad you're alive." And so. ultimately, whose respect do you want, and do you care for? Um, 
there's people out there that are going to say uh, bad or negative things. Um, man, like, I don't think you need to spend too much time worrying about those. Yeah. You, you, you worry about the people whose respect that you want to hold on to. Yeah, yeah we don't. We don't, no, I don't even, yeah, we don't even <laughs> don't listen even to any naysayers or anything like that. And I hope you don't either. Um, so when you did go to your... Um, yeah, I just I, I just want to know, is, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I mean the transition from a football player to, the, to getting that in your head. I remember when I had to leave college to go into the... That's a huge step. Uh, it was trial by fire, sure. And, and you know what? And like, like I said earlier, I did not grow up in some like rough, impoverished... Uh, childhood that that life's experiences built me for the street. It was a matter of like studying the enemy and integrating and being smart and trying to be intellectual about it to assimilate into that world from someone who was not um, a, like really a street person to be able to like thrive and survive in the in the criminal element. Um, yeah, you just, you, it, but there's no other way to do it other than to just g- get out there, there and, and put your skills on the line. What you can only train say? and talk about it so much. Yeah. What did your family say when you were going into that line of work? Um, you know, uh, like I was doing that job before I met my wife and before my kids were born. So they knew no different. They never knew me as anything other than that guy. Oh my gosh! So what? What? What year was that? When you? When 87. You, 87. I mean, I, that's that's a crazy time to be in an ATF. That's that's when uh, that's when Miami Vice is really going down, actually. Well, and the the game has changed so much for our for our lawmen and women. Uh, the rules were different then, and how we did the job is so much different than than the the rules and and the scrutiny that's placed on lawmen and women today it's 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 very much harder today than it was for me to be quite honest well that's because the streets change every day and we've talked to some people in our line of work and they're like you know back then the rules i was like well that's just because who we were going after is different it has to change that's why you think you can't look back on somebody and kind of come down it's like man who were they going against you can't base one off the other and I feel very blessed to have entered the profession when I did in the era that I did um, with the rules of engagement that we were uh, under. Um, so I, I experienced like like truly the high point of undercover work sure. and, and when it was truly valued and active and it was a dynamic tool in an investigator's toolbox. Um, and, and I just played my part. Uh, like I had a role within the bigger picture and I just did the best I could to play my part in it. So for our listeners that don't know your story, can you just give a background of once you entered into the undercover, like the kind of training you had to go through and then what you actually did undercover? Sure. Yeah. We like, we have some, some practical training, some Academy training, but like nothing really prepares you until you get out there and start getting your feet wet. Um, and so, you know, I bought guns, everything from pea shooters to rocket launchers. I bought bombs, everything from homemade PVC pipe bombs to, uh, servo activated remote controlled C4 devices. I bought drugs from eight balls, 
uh, on the street that were like so stepped on with baby laxative. There was barely any cocaine in the package up to cartel level kilo dope. You know, I did murder for hire cases where I played a contract killer. I infiltrated uh, home invasion crews that were drug crews that were ripping off their uh, their adversaries and their opponents. And ultimately, after 15 years of that, of that, of gaining that street street experience and that that expertise in the tradecraft, the opportunity came up to uh, attempt to infiltrate the Hell's Angels uh, biker gang. And so, like, I didn't walk into that untrained. I had 15 yeah, years oh, okay. of my experience. Question. All right, yeah. And that basically that what happens in, when you're in this. That, I couldn't even imagine. That's got to be something to be able to go in there and just buy guns. Yeah. Like that, no, in that line of work to, to reverse that around like that. I mean, that's just getting to know what people are like. Ultimately, when all those years I spent in, because I was reconnaissance too, it was like, man, they just sat us down and t you had to just watch. And a lot of times you can't talk, so you had to sit and listen, right? And this, that, that in its, first of all, it's a great life because you truly see what's living out there. I mean, and, and you can recognize it in different people. Like when they walk up, like, hey, this, this is so-and-so. This, this is kind of how he is, how she is. This is how it's going to go down kind of deal. I mean, in 15 years of watching, because you can't just walk into the angels like that and be everything's everything. No, no freaking you way. know, with those guys, it's, it's not like you walked up to the front door and asked for an application. Um, <laughs> That's not how that works, you know, right? No, <laughs> it doesn't. I mean, I, I'm not an angel, but I, I, I know something. Like, I don't think that's how you can just do that. Well, you know, and, and to be honest with you, when the opportunity was presented to me, I, I told the case agent, I think I could probably name 10 agents who are better suited to play this role for you than I am. Because like I wasn't a biker investigator. I had played this like white trash, quasi hitman, gun runner, debt collector. And there were guys who had focused their careers on outlaw motorcycle gangs. But the case agent convinced me, like, you're the guy I want, and I want to roll with you. And so, so I, I'm, I'm just not I'm even, sorry to be in a rough man, but is this just like the 80s? So you were this badass street dude, and then the guy in the suit came up and was like, no, you're, you're my guy. Yeah, you know, and um, is that how it works, I'm not really? even necessarily sure that in the grand scheme of things, I was even all that great at it. But I'll tell you what, what I was good at is I was always willing. I was always willing to try. Um, I didn't always succeed. I failed at times. I made mistakes, but I was always willing to raise my hand for the cases that other people didn't want to take because they were either considered impossible or too dangerous. Or I always put my hand up and said, I will try. I can't promise you the result, but I will try. So where'd that, where'd that conversation go down at when he, when they were like, Hey, this is what you, was it at a, I mean, was it in the office or was he buying you lunch? He's like, by the way, this is what you're going to have to do. Marcus is picturing, yeah. I know in, in Marcus's mind, he's picturing this like skinny guy in a suit with a briefcase coming to you and saying. The complete opposite, right? <laughs> yeah, you're right. The complete opposite of what has to go out into the streets is the guy that tells you to go out there. Yeah. You know, actually, the, the, the case agent was like a dynamic and very much badass investigator. Oh, nice. oh good. Uh, my case agent was a, was a guy named Joe Slatella. And I've said many times publicly and privately, if my kids were kidnapped and I could pick one person on the planet to investigate it, figure out who had them, go rescue them, and then get some street justice for that situation, it would have been Joe Slatella. So, oh, so he's a badass human being. Those are the guys yeah. you want running stuff. So, and when he came 
and and asked me and and then convinced me to join forces with him. Um, it, it it was it was an it was an easy decision because Joe was a guy. Joe was a boss who wasn't going to ask me to do anything that he either hadn't done himself or wasn't willing to do himself. guys are great yeah and not very many of them run around it's easy to work for a guy like that that you know has your back and and understands where you're at and what you're up against it's it's easy to run through a block wall for that guy versus the guy who's never done it and is going to go tell you to go do something that he doesn't have the balls to even try yeah that's the difference between following a line that a guy made as opposed to trying to you know, walk it you know what I mean? It's like it's not even a question. I get that. Our leadership was like that too, man. You just wanted to be behind them to work your way up because they set a standard for you. It's it, those are powerful men. Yeah, they're great. The the leadership in in whatever it is we do, like the, there's there's a common denominator out there, and and I think Marcus, your your world probably uh, operated the same. Um, you you identify your mission. You identify your objective. Um, you, you open up lines of communication with people to discuss, you know, the best way to handle something. When you do that, when you have a mission identified and you have open communication with your, with your peers, you develop trust, you develop loyalty. And then when you have those things in place, there isn't any problem that you cannot solve together. Yeah. There. You, you can, you can, you can accomplish anything together when you have those things. It's almost that's why we go through the workup. It's like, yeah, you're learning how to do this, man, but you're also learning them. Like you're learning how to operate, operate them and operate with them. And how you do that is the baby step process of getting into something. Everybody always sees the end result. The back thing, I mean, it was however many years undercover and then but the 15 before that. And then the four, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's a process, it's a yeah, life Yeah, people thing. don't see that prep work that yeah. you do mm-hmm. to actually get the job that you really wanted. Yeah, they a, don't see the work. They don't want to see it. I don't want labor pain. Just yeah. give me the baby, right? That's kind of how we are. Yeah, and I, and I think that, like, with that, there has to be some inherent willingness to, um, to, to, to face up to your fears. I, like, I don't think that. I mean, how do you have courage without fear? There. Well, if if there's not some kind of fear, then 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 where does the courage come from to stand up to it and and, and, and try to see if you can solve the problem, accomplish the mission. Oh, well, fear and courage, that's the same thing. It starts out as fear. That's how you know the courage will be there. It's almost as if the chemical that goes into creating that courage manifests itself in the actual situation. Yeah. People it, ask Marcus all the time, you know, were you scared or whatever? And he's like, if I wasn't, then I wouldn't have gotten through it. Right. I had to have fear in order to survive or, you know, like there's I a levels of up. fear in each situation. Mm-hmm. They're new. That's how, I and mean, you know that because when you get up and you go into it, it's still there. Otherwise it's like, man, I went through one thing. There shouldn't be any more fear. Uh, uh-uh. yeah. each has its own little thing. And the, the tougher the situation, like if you and I were together and went into something, <laughs> that would be something. Like if it's me and you sitting there and everything started falling apart, we, it'd be a while before me and you started freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that that 
that you want to surround yourself with pe- with smart people and intelligent people that can like be courageous, but at the same time, like make proper risk assessment, man. Like you, like if you got someone who has no fear, mm-hmm. like that recklessness. Yeah, you got to have some the other side can with get them. Someone yeah, yeah. can make things worse. Yeah, and and that's the beautiful part about what we do, man. Is, is you got to spend a lot of time identifying what what's what and what's inside that sucker. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, man, this is my fearless guy. This guy's got a lot of it, but there's something inside of him when he gets a little f- fear in him, man. He he goes. And then it's, there's everything in between. And then the mission presents itself. And then you got to see how they adapt into that. That's why in our fields, man, it's nothing but training, training, training. Every scenario, you're scared to death, right? It's, it's that fuels in there. So when life in itself shows up, you're like, Whew. And then after we go through it, it's like taking that test. You immediately know what you did right, wrong, and then you learn, and then you go. We don't really care for the grade. It's like, hey, you did well, go. Well, and I think it's good to have that that reckless, like kind of blind, fearless guy on your team too. To like, like that he serves a purpose, but you have to know in advance, like, <laughs> yeah, hey, we may have to jerk is. this guy's yeah. leash. Yeah, which one is he? <laughs> yeah, Marcus we may have to jerk this guy's <laughs> leash. He has some guys that were on his team that he says uh, those are the guys that would stay behind glass, and you only break when needed. <laughs> we got them. Man, they exist, really. I mean, we hide them. People don't, I mean, they, you don't even see them. We don't even talk about them, really. But every, yeah. you can't imagine what's what's here, Yeah. what lives yeah. here. So speaking of fear, when you got assigned to that mission or asked to do it, I can't imagine that kind of fear that you had, you know, going up with these guys that are known to, without a blink of an eye, yeah, kill, you. kill you for lying to them. Or for you know, just for that. Yeah, just just for for lying, just for lying. and and catching you. Um, what was that like? Well, you know, I'll tell you. And this is this is not a flattering story to to a flattering statement to make of myself. But I had done that long enough, or maybe too long, so that my my undercover persona had stopped being what I did for a living. And it had become who I was. I get that. Mm. I get that. One and that that's a dangerous place to arrive at. Um, it ultimately caused a huge amount of battle damage on my family, on my wife and my kids. Um, the, the mission and the objective and me being in this undercover role had become the most important thing in my life. It had become more important than my wife and my kids and my friends. And, um, that, that, like I said, that's not a flattering statement to make of myself, but it's nonetheless true. And if I wasn't open and transparent about that with you, then everything else I say to you today is counterfeit. Mm-hmm. Well, and you almost have to be because if you, if your mind, not almost, you got it. Um, be. Yeah, because if your mind is even thinking like, okay, I'm going to go home and flip the switch off, then, then you're caught. You're caught in in your job because well, you know, I, uh, there, there's a story. I, I, I came home. I'd been, been on the road for an extended period of time on an operation and, you know, I'm in role and my wife told me you cannot be gone and then walk in this house and speak to me and our kids like we're street people. And my reaction, my self-defense reaction to that was like, I am not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. Mm -hmm. People who treat what I do as a hobby end up dead. I have to stay on. 
And then her response was, when you walk in this house, you better install a dimmer switch and dial that attitude down. And if you can't, don't come back. I like her. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Because that's a hard, I mean, I can't imagine being your wife and having to endure, I mean, she didn't sign up for living with a, a hell's angel. She signed up for living with you. So I would handle things better now in hindsight. Like with me, wisdom is something that always came to me right after I needed it. Um, And (laughs) I would. That's how um, she works. (laughs) Knowing what I know now, I would do the job. I would still do it. I would do it the same way, but I would be more uh, sensitive towards what it was doing to my family. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's why some of us have to go through these things. So you, we can turn. Somebody has to learn the lesson. Mm-hmm. There's always the first, right, and the people who have to grind and really, and then you turn back, and it's the pass down. Like you and I are going through. It's like turn around, and now you teach the younger ones. And the the, I think there's some of the professions that we have here that you. I mean, the families need to be kind of later in life. I was that way when I was in. I was married to that life, no wife, no kids. That was the deal, and it made things a lot easier. But the life also consumed me. I got walked, talked, eat. I mean, I never turned it off either. So I could, I, that's, hats off to those guys in our communities who have the wives and the kids, man. Y'all are hats off to the wives that go through all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, you know, and, and I've said many times, I've made a million mistakes in my life and God and my wife and my kids have given me a million and one second chances to try to fix it. So I'm trying to take that one second chance out of a million and do better. Yeah, that's awesome. So for the, our listeners that haven't heard your full story, when you were in that undercover position with the Hells Angels, which is like super scary <laughs> for anybody to, to be in, um, how did that, do you, was that mission actually accomplished? Did you achieve what your goal was that your um, case agent had sent you to do? Well, you know, what's what's an interesting part of that story, that case lasted two years, you know, day in and day out, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 hour days with these guys, sometimes days on end, weeks on end, uh, month after month, year after year. But the case ultimately concluded um, where we uh, faked a murder. We fabricated the murder of a Hells Angels rival. And then we took the fabricated evidence of the murder back to the Hells Angels and convinced them that we had killed someone on their behalf. And when we did that, that is ultimately when they put a patch on my back and said, welcome, brother, you've shown you got what it takes. You know how to take care of business. You're a Hells Angel now. Wow. What'd that feel like? It was, uh, to be honest with you, it was a little bit anticlimactic after all the ramp up to it and all the things we had done when I finally had that cut on my back. Um, and I, I, I looked back and after the journey, trying to climb that mountain, I felt that when I got there, like, the, like there was like everybody was going to throw a party for me and it there was going to be a parade, like this success that had never been achieved before. And when I got there and I look back on my life, on my family, on my friends, like it was a napalm strike. And I had 
crushed and ruined and burned down everything for that mission. And so I got there and I got it. And it was heartbreaking to, to, to see what I had done to my career and to my life to get there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why it's so hard to infiltrate the, I mean, that that's, that's going into a completely different life. Yeah. I mean, you have to go against everything that you're supposed to do in order to do that. They are the opposite of, of law. Well, you know what, what it does in undercover work, which is, which is another unhealthy part of it is that God does not build us to uh, intentionally set out to, to betray people. Oh yeah. No. And in undercover work, like you start off with a false persona and you're selling that false persona through lies to people. And then you're, you're building trust. You're building loyalty. In some cases you build love knowing all along from the very beginning, man, like I'm going to be present for the worst day in your life. Cause I'm going to betray all your dirty secrets. Mm, that's hard. That, that's, that's, that's not normal. Can't, and you can't live in that life and go through that kind of stuff with some guys and not create friendships and bonds. That's not how it works. Not in that, Absolutely. Not, not, not in that you're, environment. You know, you're, you're spending time with people that you see doing despicable, vile things. That That is why you're there, to, to gain facts and uncover evidence and, and be a witness to those types of things. But you see those same people, like you hold their babies, man. You sleep at their house. They sleep at your house. You eat with them. You socialize with them. And you see like redeeming elements mm -hmm. to their Absolutely. personality and to their character that makes the bad sides even more disappointing because you say, man, you're better than this. I've seen you be better than this. Yeah. That's really hard. That's like the. Oh, I mean, that's because we're not designed to do that. Just like you said. Yeah, that's really tough. Yeah, you know, God doesn't build us. Like, do betrayals happen? Of course. But God doesn't build us to, like, intentionally decide to betray someone until you become an undercover agent. And then that is the, in, the entirety of your mission. So what do you do? Separate it from that's, that's the job? I mean, if you can't have one element without the other, it's a, it's a game we've been playing since the dawn of time, right? One, guy, one side does one thing, one side chases. I think like there's there's always good guys and bad guys, yeah. and I justified it to myself that, um, like like I, I I'm not the judge, jury, or executioner on any of this. Like I was an operative that was uh, trying to uh, uncover facts and be a witness to crime, and then I report that out to somebody else who then decides to prosecute it, present it in a courtroom, a, a, a jury and a judge ultimately decides that person's guilt or innocence, not me. Yeah. So after you get through all that and, and the mission's over, I mean, do you, do you carry that weight again? I mean, I, what, what happens in a situation like that? Because I mean, coming, coming straight in and going into a deep undercover, I can't replicate that multiple times, I wouldn't think. Well, you know, when when the Hell's Angels case ended, there there was a, a downside to that in that when my true identity was revealed, uh, the death and the violence threats 
started uh, started arriving, and they were for a period of time they were hot and heavy. I had murder contracts on me. Um, the Angels farmed a murder contract on me to the Aryan Brotherhood, to the MS-13, to the 18th Street Gang in Los Angeles. I had lone wolf uh, assassins popping up, wanting to find me and my family. There was threats to kidnap my kids off the school bus. Uh, there was threats to kidnap and videotape the gang rape of my wife. Mm. Um a plot was uncovered where they were going to uh, stick me with a, a syringe that had the eight was contaminated with the AIDS virus. Um, my house was burned down in the summer of 2008. My house was burned to the ground. And so um, th- there's that there's uh, a dark after story aftermath that is sometimes a part of it, sometimes a part of it. Did the agency have your back in that and help protect you? They, uh, in, in, I, I got into a pretty good argument with them because they failed in that. Mm-hmm. My agency failed to uh, react properly to the threats. Um, and, and basically I was told the threat package against you is too massive and it's too expansive and you're on your own. Like they said to me, where do you want us to start? You want us to start with the Hells Angels? Okay, we'll start there. Or maybe the Aryan Brotherhood or the MS-13 or 18th Street or these lone wolves. Like, where do you think we should start? Like, we don't know. So you're on your own. You figure it out. Mm, that's tough. That's the stuff they don't explain in the beginning, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I will say this. In the end, like after we've gotten through all that, the threats and then the the dispute with how they were reacted to, like, I am not bitter. I love ATF. I love the men and women with their boots on the ground trying to, you know, do a dangerous job and keep us safe. Um, I ran into a perfect storm, a perfect management storm of incompetence and insecurity and power corruption. And that that was not the normal. It just, it's happened to be who was overseeing me at the time. You're talking about the angels or the, the guys you yeah, the for ATF. You're talking about our, your, your squad? Yeah. Your squad was just as bad as them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, worse in some ways because they're supposed to act like that. The other side is supposed to act like that. We're supposed to be better than that. Right. Yeah, that's terrible. So do you, what, know, do you go back in and, and that create the, the, the program, how it's supposed to work? Um, hopefully it helped, but I I will tell you this, anybody that ever intends harm on any of us or, uh, is, is, is adversarial to any of us, to any of us, the best payback we can have is just to live a good, happy life. Yeah. That, that, that'll frustrate them more than anything. Like, Hey man, I'm trying to live a good life and I'm happy. I'm not bitter. I'm not burning for anybody. I'm moving forward. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the differences between uh, the government and everybody else, man. Is that when you when that happens, then they learn, mm-hmm. and then they also apply it. Like they're stronger than they've ever been, probably. Well, us, is like we don't we don't apply that logic sometimes. Like what do we do right? What do we do wrong? Yeah, and I and I think in a perfect world, um, that is the case. But it but it works on the other side of the equation. So like. If, if we look at our mistakes and say, hey, I don't want to repeat this, this is what I did, and this is how I fix it or avoid it in the future, 
the hell's angels are doing the exact same thing. Yeah. If they're doing it right. Mm-hmm. They yeah, got smarter it. too. So was that your last, um, did you retire after that? Cause that had to be so stressful. Actually, you know, to be honest with you, I was so overboard in undercover work. I came out of that case and continued to, to, to serve as an undercover operative until the threats got so stupid that the agency just said like, like you can't do this anymore. But I went out and and even after that case, did a couple murder for hires and some home invasion cases. And uh, one thing that I'm very proud of, and um, as simple as it is, my very last day on the job, um, I went out with a local narcotics task force and bought some street dope. I was like, I want to leave the same <laughs> way I came in. Yeah. I don't want to leave, you know, getting beat down and and in a dispute with my agency. I want to leave with at least something in my heart, in my head that I feel good about. I wanted to feel like I left winning, not losing. Yeah. Talk about that day. Yeah. What was Because yeah. people don't realize, and everyone who gets in, they, they, when you become a part of the, that working wheel, you're a part of it. The minute you step out of it, you step out of it for sure. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, I, I knew it was my last day. It was the last work day before my official scheduled retirement. And I had some friends who were, uh, I'd remain close to, who were part of a local narcotics task force. And I said, look, if, if you can, I would love for you guys to do me a favor. You owe me nothing. Um, man, like, 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 let me go out and run with the boys for a day. Um, and, and, and they accommodated that. And, um, that, that was a very, a very, I had a very happy ending. That's awesome. So, how do you, how, what do you, how did you transfer that and from one life, well, from football into the ATF and to what you do now? You know, actually, the the transition has been pretty simple. I actually, I'm a high school football coach right now. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> By the way, do they? Do, this is the best part when you find stuff about your teachers that you didn't know your yeah. coach because. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? It's like you see somebody and you're just kind of like, oh, it's Coach so and so, you know, whatever. And then you're like, no, man, you know what that freaking did? You know what I'm talking about? It's like a game changer right when you hear that. Like your players, what they think of you. You know what? I um, I don't keep anything from them, but I don't advertise it to them either. If Like I let them kind of go through their own process. Um, but so many of the lessons that we learn through this life apply to the sports field and especially apply to football. Yeah. Um, and so in addition to trying to teach them skill, football skills, like, like probably more importantly, we're trying to teach them life skills. Yeah. 100, 100%. Yeah. I mean, everything that you learn, what you take from, from the, yeah, the experience, but it's also what you take from the people and you regurgitate down in yourself and, and the experience kind of hammer that home and it's in, Man, it's important that we pass that down to the kids. Yeah, you're teaching you know, them to be men. Well, one of the things I tell them, which, which, uh, like Marcus, like this is, you know, this will hit home for you, is that when we can succeed, 
and no one cares about who gets the credit for the success, you know what? Now we're on to something. When we can achieve and no one cares who gets the credit for the achievement, now we're heading in the right direction. Yeah, that's when we did. We, we got it done. Yeah, And life itself, I, and a lot of the programs that we go through, when you go in in the beginning, I remember this. I talk about this too sometimes, well, especially when we were going through in, in SEAL training Hell Week. There's a, there's a moment when you're like, oh, I made it through that. I did this. I did that. To reshift and you start saying, hey, we, we made it. We got this done. And then when you rotate in the team, it's all about us, not I, that kind of deal. And then, yeah, the victory comes through all of us. Like if you're there doing your part to watch everybody else succeed because of how happy it makes you watching them be happy and do well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's tough and to I get think, there, you know, but it's possible. There's just, there's these simple mantras you learn, you know, like through this life that translate to these kids. I tell them all the time, if you want someone to remember your name, you're going to have to do something they can never forget. Yeah. Um, like it, it just doesn't come to you. If you want something you've never had before, you're going to have to do things that you've never done before to get it. Yeah. yeah. Was there any moment during, not just during that two year time period, but any in your 27 time period that you were just like, this is too much. I have to quit. Like, this is just, I can't be two different people. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the, a story that probably fits that in it. It was the worst day of my life and it was the best day of my life within the same moment. Um, so I'd go, I'd go out on these missions and I'd be gone for an extended period of time. And every time I'd come home, I would do the bare minimum I had to do to keep my family functioning, pay the bills, mow the grass, play, pat the kids on the head, have a cup of coffee with my wife. Cause I could not wait to get back and be smoking and joking with gangsters. And every time I'd leave the house, my son, who was a little boy at the time, eight, 10 years old, would run out in the yard and say, dad, don't leave yet. And he'd pull a rock out of the yard and he'd give me a little stone. And for years I had collected these stones. I had hundreds of them. I kept them in my pocket. They were in the saddlebags of my motorcycle, my undercover car, my undercover house. I was handing them out to my partners because they were, they were, there was a blessing on them. So right before we go finish the case with the fabricated murder. I'm getting ready to leave. And Jackie does the same thing. Dad, don't leave yet. And he comes running up and he's like, I've been saving this rock for you. It's special. It's shaped like a heart. And I'm a 40 year old father trying to comfort my 10 year old son. And I said, dude, all the things that I've been missing with you, I'm, I'm going to catch up with. I'm almost done. We're going to ride bikes and play catch and go to the movies and read books. And we're going to wrestle. And it's all because of your good luck charms. And they're so, they work so good. I've been handing them out to my partners. And this little boy standing on my driveway and tears start running down his cheeks. And he's standing there with no shirt, and no shoes. And he said, dad, those aren't good luck charms. And they were only for you. You shouldn't have given them to anybody else. Oh, and cry. I'm looking at him and I couldn't process where, like what they were. And he's like, those were for you to put in your pocket. And every time you thought someone was going to hurt you, you could put your hand in there and touch it. And it would be like me being there to help you fight them back. That is what I had done to my son. That is what I had done to my kids in this, in this overzealous effort to be Donnie Brasco part two and change the world. It was the best day of my life. Because my son had taught me what my real job was, and it was the worst day of my life because I'd realized how badly I'd been failing at it. 
That makes me cry. That is so sweet. Ugh. Kids, boy, they can bring some levity quick. Yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, now Jackie's uh, 27 years old. And um, uh, in, like I said, in spite of the battle damage I put on my family, like they're still together. Somehow they've managed to tolerate me and love me and and uh, and give me that million sec- millionth second chance. And I'm uh, I'm very grateful for that. Love that. Oh my gosh. Do you still have any of the rocks? Oh, that's awesome. I love that. I saw David and Goliath, right? Yeah. Wow. That's really special. Yeah, I do. I, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's something it's, it's funny how of all the things you acquire in your life, a little stone out of our front yard is one of the most valuable possessions I will ever be able to call my own. Yeah. I got something like that too. Mm-hmm. It was a gift that it was just like that, no matter what else comes your way, man, when those come, there's certain time periods, certain situations that something will get delivered. And when it does, you'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. This, this has no value, no monetary value, no value to anybody but me. Yeah. But it's like immensely important to me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing your story with us. That's oh. really, really incredible. So what can people do to learn about your story? I mean, what, how, how can they follow you if you want them following you at all? I mean, I, you know, yeah. or <laughs> you're how, such yeah, a, a life conundrum with you. Because yeah. I mean, it's like, hey, man, how do we how do you tell people about you and and what you're doing now? But then, you know, how yeah. do you want yeah, us to do that? Know. Yeah, I've, you know, I've, I've, like, I don't hide. I, 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 th- I think if, um, if I hide, they win. The bad guys win. I, like, I live my life with caution. I don't live my life in fear. Um, I'm, I'm careful about what I do and where I go, but um, I'm not going to live my life looking over my shoulder because that, that gives them the victory. So I don't hide. I have a website. It's just jdobbins, J A Y D O B Y N S dot com. Um, I've written a couple books that the, you know, my stories are told within and I do some, some public speaking here and there when I have the opportunity outside of football. Um, and I just try to live a humble, gracious life and try to live a good life. And in the end, when judgment day comes, I'm hoping to have one more plus mark on my, on my scorecard than a minus. (laughs) Amen. How's the football team doing? Dude, you know what? We're 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 trying really hard. I, I took over the the program at a very small school that was like struggling very much, on the verge of being abandoned, and uh, we're fighting back every day to be relevant and uh, to to change the culture that was there before I arrived. And um, I'll tell you what I've 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 got some amazing young men and some amazing coaches. And the, uh, the success that we have found is 100% due to them. Like, like I am, am as much a witness to it as I am a participant in it. That's awesome. Uh, I'm not going to ask you which life is more rewarding because that's impossible to put a st- stamp on that. But being in this phase of it now, the giving back to the kids, like teaching them and the experiences that, that we went through, that's when they kind of settle in like, oh, I was worth it. Can't understand it, and I, I try to tell my buddies that we were talking about. I was like, "Man, it's almost like you got to go through everything in your life so you can teach a kid." Mm-hmm. 
Don't take it personal. Like somebody had to learn a damn lesson. Which yeah. one do you want and, it to be? You want, I mean, so if I had to look at it like I was taking the pain from my kid because, you know, life's going to teach him something, then that makes it all right. Well, and I tell the, you know, the kids I coach and my own kids for that matter. Um, like, let me talk to you about my mistakes and my failures um, so that you don't have to repeat them. Don't reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Life is about making mistakes. You're going to go do things wrong. But make your own mistakes. Don't remake mine. I can tell you how they turn out, and it's not very good. Yeah. Yeah. For real. <laughs> I feel that. <laughs> That's how I am. With We have a 24-year-old, and I'm the same way. I'm like, don't make the mistakes I had. I hit them from the unoriginal side. Uh-huh. I'm like, don't be unoriginal. Don't be doing the stuff I did. Go get something new. One, so I can be entertained, and two, so I can teach you a lesson. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, like for you guys, you know, with, with new babies, mm-hmm. um, Man, like, like I know me, like I rarely put my head on the pillow where I don't look at the mistakes that I made that day, things I said that I shouldn't have said or didn't say that I should have said, things I did, didn't do. Um, I'm very self-critical. Um, and I think all of us just raising kids, we're doing the very best we can with the circumstances and the situations in front of us. And some days we get it right. Some days we get it wrong. But if you just keep trying, it, it'll, it'll be fine. Yeah, man, I boiled it down all the way to just like getting through the day as a pass or fail. Like everyone's like, "Hey, what kind of grade I make?" And I was like, "Man, I said you did all right. Get out of there, right?" You know, it's just like, (laughs) "Ain't that the truth?" You know what I'm talking about? Like you, in the beginning, people like, "Well, I want this and the other." And then when you get enough life in you, it's like, "Hey, man, we got to the other day, freaking good." So how how do people buy your books? They're on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or yeah, they're on Amazon. Like like I don't I don't pitch that stuff very hard. If people find it and find it on their own, I'm flattered. Okay. Um, And um, but but I but I do thank you for the opportunity to speak to you. I I wish Morgan would have been here. I would have loved to say hello to him and wish him well in his election. Please do that for me. Oh yes, sir. Um, And Marcus, like you know, I said a couple times to to talk to someone. with your reputation and experience and to be invited onto your show was uh, immensely flattering and humbling for me. I, I feel inadequate to have these conversations with you, but I appreciate you tolerating me and having me. And, and, um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. Thank you. You bet brother. Thank you again, man. God bless. Yes. We're very appreciative. Thank you. Thanks Jay. Bye. Bye.